I really wanted to talk about um, uh, wisdom, and the difference between wisdom and knowledge. I want to start with a story. It's always good to start with a story. It's always good to start with a story. I have a lot of stories, but we'll start with a story. And uh, the main stories that I was going to start with were the stories of uh, a graduation that I went to this weekend. How many people went to a graduation this weekend or a wedding or uh, a some sort of... Uh, People now graduate, by the way, from kindergarten into the first grade <laughs> and from preschool into school. But, you know, the thing is, I think that's quite appropriate because it's a big deal to go from preschool into the real school and for each of these things. Um, so we'll get up to that. But I wanted to go back and start from the idea of wisdom and knowledge. And anybody want to have a chance at saying what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? What do you think? There's no wrong answer, okay? This is, an, this is one of those open-ended essay exams. Could you discuss wisdom and knowledge? Yeah. All right, who wants to add to that? Yeah. Okay, what else? There you go. I think knowledge is what I know in my head and wisdom is what I know in my heart. All right. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a deeper knowledge. <laughs> yeah. What she say? What oh, that that everybody so you have to say it louder. Then we can all do the sound again, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> do, you know, do you watch it? You know, you sometimes watch. I think it's in Britain in the House of Parliament. They feel quite free to shout out boo and yay all the time. You know, it's like, like something like a, a, a soccer match or rugby or something. Um, so I was thinking, could you have, so obviously, I'm really, this is a, a rhetorical question. You could have. Uh, Knowledge without wisdom. You could have wisdom without knowledge. How many people know people who were very wise and uh, didn't know a lot about you know how the how many feet per second uh, gravity pulls? On? I, uh, at this moment, I've forgotten myself. The Buddha <laughs> did not know that things drop at thirty-two. Feet per second squared, yeah. Uh, but it didn't get in the way of his being able to understand how you understand how how one successfully navigates having a life which is necessarily beset with challenges. You know, one of the aspects of listening to people share the things that are dear to their heart is it underscores for me the fact that life is so beset with challenges, and they're not all the dreadful things that are happening. You know the the losing your mind, or the uh, being in, having some grave physical illness, or um, sometimes they uh, being accepted into uh, five wonderful colleges and not being able to make up your mind about it. You know, you say, "Well, that's not a problem," but sure, it's a problem if you 
really feel I have to. We have challenges all the time in life. What, I think maybe the definition of a challenge is that it poses the question, what should I do now? That's what a challenge is, you know, what should I do now? And that the, the mind that's, uh, I guess, uh, equanimous enough or balanced enough to say, hmm, this is a challenge. What should I do now? And then figure out the answer is a, a mind that recognizes challenges. And when we go around and people say this or this or this or this, sometimes I'm, I'm reminded, oh, yes, that happens, and oh, yes, that happens. I think to myself, life has such a vast, endless, really, palette of challenges that you could have that you could never even think about, never thought about that challenge, but people have it. And I'm it's sort of overwhelming, and also very, it, it raises in me a great feeling of uh, admiration for human beings that we get up every morning with whatever our challenges are, and we do them. And we mostly don't think about, ah, oh, another day, I have to do it, you know? But we do it with all kinds of challenges and limitations. And we could think about, because uh, I just, but that would be a whole other story, and I won't go there. Um, I wanted to tell, I don't think I told you, two weeks ago when I was here, did I tell you about having been on a panel with Joseph Goldstein? Good, because I, <laughs> because I meant to, and it's a really cool story, and I meant to, and I, I, I forgot to do it. While I was in Boston, one of the things that we did was a fundraising event for um, a Dharma organization in Boston, and uh, the fundraiser was Sylvia Borstein and Joseph Goldstein in conversation. And so here are two Dharma teachers, with some amount of following in the right circles. People know, you know, heard that name, not all over the place, but people who came were interesting people to them. So we are we're actually two people who have been doing this kind of contemplative practice for more than 30 years. And the moderator said, what should I ask you? I'm thinking of asking this or that or the other Dharma questions. I said, no, I don't think that, you know, that uh, our answers to the Dharma questions are going to be interesting. They've all heard us teach. And we're not going to disagree with each other, or you know, it's it's not going to be interesting. Why don't you ask us what we've learned in 35 years of practice, and how each of us is different? They said, great idea. They said, I said, you just ask, and then we'll take it from there and do it. And I did tell Joseph that was what they were going to ask, so I wasn't the only one with a heads up about it. Uh, and we both spoke about it, and. I'll tell you what I said, but I want to tell you first what he said, which I, I said something. I said, I liked what I said. It was good. Uh, and then he said, I wouldn't say exactly the same thing that Sylvia said. It's fine, lovely what she said. He would say, I, uh, after all these years of practice, I'm convinced that I know less than I did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, there were a lot of things that I really thought I knew. I had beliefs, I knew this, I knew that, I knew the other, especially about Dharma. I understood, I read, I taught about the Buddha. It was all, some of it was understood in the context of what he was saying as a, you learn Dharma psychology, he said. And those are the things I knew, I believed, I understood them. He said, now, I don't know so much as I used to know. Especially now these days, there are debates about um, 
can you separate the practices that the Buddha taught of mindfulness and loving kindness from the cosmology of Buddhism? And if you can, and they're valid, because many people have done that. That's what mindfulness-based stress reduction and all those other kinds of practices that have taken the practices out of the cosmology. Even Spirit Rock Meditation Center has pretty much taken the practices out of the cosmology. And we have Buddhas around and we tell Buddha stories, but we don't so much talk about the world, the worldview as seen by a person in the time of the Buddha living in India. Well, we don't so much talk about sequential rebirths or how they work or if they work or if they're true or if they're not true. And there have been a number of books published recently. I talked about them earlier this year, making specifically the point that Western uh, followers of what the Buddha taught have in the last century said, listen, we live in a different world. The world is round. We understand life and death in a different way. We have different cosmologies. We have uh, machines that study neurology. We can see how, what it means when, when it says the mind has certain habits. We might translate it as the brain fires in certain ways and not certain other ways. We have another way of articulating what the Buddha knew as basic knowledge. Uh, maybe the cosmology isn't true and we don't need it. Or maybe the cosmology is true, but it's not useful to us. And the people who say, but the cosmology is relevant. And what do you think, Joseph? And he says, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he said, you know, this sounds right and this sounds right. But he said, it's fine. It, it serves me better to say, I don't know. Because some people think this and some people think that. And maybe I even have a view, but I don't know. And it's not relevant to me to have a view, which seemed to me to be the more important piece of that communication. It's not like Joseph is not bright enough to think it over and choose the view that, 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 that seems more correct to him. But what I think it is an articulation of is the more that we have a view, it's this way, the more we have to protect that view and consolidate it and not let in anything that might counteract that view. I found that very liberating because I myself, and you know it if you've been hearing me in the earlier part of this year, have been kind of really wrestling with that. If I don't believe this, how can I teach that and how can I say that? And uh, it came up one, one morning in practice where I said, you know, I'm really weighing some of these things. How am I on the cosmology? I had just read Stephen Batchelor's book, and I was just about to ring the bell at the end of uh, a morning of class. And my habit had been to say, whatever merit we accrue by our coming together and studying and practicing Dharma together, May that merit be donated and given freely for the well-being of all the beings in the world. It's a lovely thing to say. I've been doing that for decades. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute. If I don't believe in that whole business of accumulating merit, how can I now make a blessing based on that whole thing? So I made a different kind of a blessing. I said, may whatever we do here so change the habits of our, our mind that we make a different world. That's, that seems like a... But then I thought to myself, you know, it's nice to say, may the merit that we accrue. People have been saying that for years and years and years. It's like a little song that you sing. It's a good song. Maybe it doesn't have to be literally true. 
maybe I don't have to be like stuck in that view, either the view for or the view against. There's a, um, the first lines of the, uh, 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 the faith, faith verses of the third Zen patriarch are, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Only if you set things apart, this I like, this I like, don't like, this is good, this is not good, you set heaven and earth infinitely apart. Say, I don't know. That's actually, I don't. That was such an enlightening teaching to me. Do you like that teaching? I found that so inspiring to be able to say. And for me, who grew up in a family where it was tremendously important to go to school, learn everything, and know. And everybody I knew had an opinion. Uh, you know, and, and, and the jokes of my childhood, were, even which were ethnic jokes, which only people of that ethnic can make, because otherwise it's not nice. But in the ethnic, you can say, if you put four Jews in a room, you have five opinions. Because, <laughs> But everybody prided themselves on their opinions. And to be able to say, you know, it's a thing that I don't know. And it's not germane to know what I, what I trust which is different, and Joseph would say this as well, what I trust is that if I cannot reconcile my mind to the truth of my experience, then I'll suffer. So then we come to the difference between wisdom and knowledge. That that's, a, that's a piece of wisdom that, that comes out in the Four Noble Truths. By the way, in that debate with, not debate, discussion with Joseph, what I had said was, uh, what's true about me is I'm, uh, I became kinder. And uh, I always like to say that when I say that, or my husband hears me say that as I'm teaching, he says, you were always kind. So, And I think that's pretty true. But I actually am convinced that I became kinder uh, because I am more aware when I'm not I catch that sooner. I'm more alert to that. And uh, it hurts me more when I am in some way, certainly deliberately unkind, but inadvertently unkind, it hurts me more. Um, I think also because I'm more aware of how complicated life is and the fact that everybody is working as hard as they can to really feel at ease and have their life unfold smoothly with ease. So I have more compassion, actually, for all of us. You know, if we could see into everybody's mind, everybody has a whole mind full of troubles and challenges and troubles and challenges, and yet they get up in the morning and you pass them somewhere and you say, how are you? And they say, fine, you know, because it's not the, really the right time to sit down and say, well, I'm worried about this and that and the other and my shoulder and whatever it is. So what I wanted to start with, that was, that was story number one, was the story of what we talked about. Story number two was I spent uh, Sunday, I went down to Santa Cruz. My grandson graduated from the university there. I thought he might be here today, but I didn't see him. You didn't see him either. All right. Uh, <laughs> this would be an opportunity for me to be disappointed. <laughs> I'm happy to tell you that I'm not terribly disappointed. 
my disappointment is mitigated by I have at least one grandchild with me, so that picks it up. Uh, anyway, who will report it maybe to the other grandchild? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I went to Santa Cruz to, um, to my grandson's graduation, and I was thinking about, and this is what I'm going to get up and write on this, on this board, which I've never used a board like this since we're here. I was thinking about the idea of uh, becoming wise as a thing that you couldn't study. It, becoming wise does not have to do with having somebody else tell me that life is complicated. It has to do with, nor does it have to do particularly with having been on retreat. Oh, look at that. I've never, in all these years, had a thing like this. I don't even know how to do it. Okay. <laughs> So first I could take this away. Oh, look at this. This is also the first time I ever used a, a writing board. It's like magic. It's like magic. Really, honestly, it's not an eraser. It doesn't do chalk, nothing. Okay, look at that. Um, the two books that I read, we'll start this way and then I'll go back to Santa Cruz. The two books that I read that I told you about just before I went off were a confession of a of a Buddhist atheist, uh, and Stephen, who Bachelor, who wrote it, is very clear that he wants you to know that it says confession. It's a in the singular, not a plural. He said it's not a scandalous story about I'm a Buddhist, but you know, on the side, da, 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 all these confessions. He said I am confessing in the same way that one confesses a. Um, a dedication to a faith. It's an expression of a, of, a, of, a, of a sincere Buddhist who's an atheist. And what he says, I am a sincere Buddhist, he's actually a Pali scholar, he reads all the, all the original languages of the scriptures, and he says that the current level of scholarship is such that people are able to piece, parse out what the Buddha actually taught and what are the, the stories that grew up around what he taught in the 300 years at least before they wrote down anything about, uh, of what he taught. And in those three years, do you ever go to a kid's birthday party where they sit in lines and you, you whisper and the first person says cupcake and then it goes through everybody will whisper and at the end of the line it comes out toothbrush and it says nothing to do, that's just in one line and one birthday party. So in 300 years of word of mouth passing down, you could imagine that a number of people could have stuck in other pieces of teaching that they thought were germane and that would that express their point of view. So there are a lot of misogynist views in in the in the scripture. Who knows? There's a book there's a book by Rahula Wampala that people have been reading forever called What the Buddha Taught. There's a book by one of these British scholars whose name is now eluding me called What the Buddha Thought. And really it's parsing out what seems to be really what the Buddha thought. And what he thought, and the essence that all these scholars agree on, is that he thought the Four Noble Truths were the correct expression of what's true about life, and he thought the Eightfold Path was the way to get there. And so actually in, in, in the 25, 30 years that I have been studying and practicing Buddhism here in, in America, uh, we've had lots of conversations between 
the, the mindfulness community, the Theravada community, the Zen community, and the Tibetan community, who all have different liturgies, they have different cosmologies, they have different um, uh, forms of practice, and, what we, and we get along very well. We have joint meetings, which is unheard of, by the way, in the whole history of Buddhism, up until Buddhism came to the West. Everybody was very sectarian and thought that their way was the best way. And in the United States, I think because we're not so sectarian and mostly because people weren't born Buddhists and therefore weren't so wedded to it as a family identity. We've come together and what people have decided is we do it all differently, but everybody agrees on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path as being what the Buddha taught as a template for understanding uh, how you might understand what's going on in life, how to see the truth of life, how to understand. He said, I came to teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. My colleague Sally Clough loves to quip on that line. Every time she says that line, she says, come to think of it, that's two things. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, okay. But she, she does that in such a straight face, it's always funny. Uh, he said, this is, what I, this is what I see. The human dilemma is not only what happens to us, but that the mind ties itself up in knots about what happens to us. And the very tying of knots makes it difficult for us to choose what would be the least suffering course of action on the basis of it. And if you see things in terms of four, four truths, so that you don't have to take this on as dogma, both, both the Buddha said this, and Stephen Batchelor says this very clearly, as does somebody is peeking in the door. <laughs> For the first time in 25 years, sweetheart, I've got a truck part, and you came in. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm sitting down. I'm not doing the truck part. <laughs> you come sit here. <laughs> My <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> sit down. Sit down. No, no, right here, right here, right here, right here. In the seat, I'm up. I'll sit for a minute. Okay. My friend and teacher, Jack Hornfield, for those of you who might not know. <laughs> oh, it's warm. Thanks. <laughs> so, the, you know what I'm doing? Hmm. I decided I was going to start, and I have. Uh, talking from Stephen Batchelor's book and Stephen Asma's book, saying what the Buddha taught were the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, not as a belief system for people to say, I believe this, but as a template through which people could look at their lives and say, is this true? How is it true? And if so, how does that organize things for me? So just on the outside possibility that somebody here does not know those Four Noble Truths, do you want to tell them to me? Take a guess. Take a <laughs> Susan, come life on. Is life is challenging. Let's do life is challenging, no matter what. Life is challenging. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll um, broaden that out. Life is challenging. Okay, what else? Don't get attached to the challenge. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to change it a little bit because <laughs> uh, we want to say something about the, the, what really... 
This word challenging is important to say. We'll, we'll say life is challenging because it's always changing. It's always changing. It's this and it's this and it's this. We're always accommodating to something new. It's one, I sometimes I think it's one long accommodate from the beginning to the end, you know. You have to accommodate to go to preschool and accommodate to go to grade school and accommodate to algebra and accommodate to a teenage body and accommodate to making a, a decision about what you're gonna do in your life and accommodate to getting a partner and not getting a partner and having a family and not having a family. And before you know it, you have to accommodate to an empty nest and to arthritis and then you have to accommodate to everybody's now running the show, not you anymore. So it's one long accommodate. And then there's death. And then there's death. <laughs> you know, there's a, there was a great cartoon years ago that I carried around with me that had, a, a, you saw it was a big room. And it had, uh, and people were walking in one door and going out, walking in here and going out here. And what was coming in on this end was a baby crawling in. And then you could see a toddler, and then you see a person standing up, a child. Then you see a, you know, like a, a late adolescent. You see a person in their maturity. Then they start bending over and bending over, and then they got a cane. And then they're creeping out this door on the other end. And there's a, nothing in it, no caption, except a sign on the back wall that says, No loitering. <laughs> uh, so from the beginning to the end, you know. And and that's about it, you know. The, the moving finger writes and having writ moves on. So you can't change it. So how are you going to accommodate? And really, I, 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 I like to think of what the Buddha taught as the clue of, why we su of how we suffer. I think that the suffering is the imperative in the mind that things be different from how they are at any time. It's not even the desire in the mind or the wish. It's often translated as the desire, the second noble truth. You sometimes read about the cause of suffering as desire. Uh, I, I don't even like that. I think that suffering is, desire is suffering in the sense of craving. There are lots of things that I desire. I, you know, I desire good things for my family and health for everybody in a different world. Um, if I can't stand that that's not true, and my mind can't relax until that's true, then I suffer. If I can say, I'd like for these things to happen, but you know, I'm working towards them. It's, I, I like to think about uh, suffering as attention. We'll, we'll abbreviate that as suffering. Suffering is equal. It's attention in the mind that can't accommodate. That can't accept the truth. All right, what's the third? Peace is possible. Peace is possible. Ta -da. Peace is possible. In the middle of this very world, with this body, with this life, with this story that's going on, peace is possible. We could have a peaceful mind. Do you believe it? No. <laughs> okay, who didn't? Let's go. Okay, would you like to expound that? Because I can't get it. I mean, I, I, my, my knowledge tells me that it's possible, but my experience hasn't proven that. Okay, remind me of your name. My name is Karen, Karen Hirsch. Karen. You know, for a long time, I used to talk about the third and a half noble truth. <laughs> I, and I meant it seriously. 
that uh, the, because I, when I wrote that third and a half noble truth, I said I get it, but I don't have it. You know, I just kind of get it, but but I think that we all of us, if we think about it, this is not such a big challenge. Otherwise, I wouldn't put it out this way. Have had moments in which the mind is absolutely okay, just for a moment. Life is the same, nothing changed, no one got better or improved in the wars and the this and that, in the personal life, in the life life. And then just for a moment, the mind is says, it's okay, just like that. You recognize that? Everybody recognize it, more or less? I think those moments, we recognize them in the moment, we say, wow. But then we forget about them. <laughs> But I think the fact that they exist, for me, is enough. They exist just a little bit. Yes? When you wrote Peace is Possible, that's immediately what came to my mind, that peace is possible. It might be five minutes or an hour or maybe even a day. Yeah. But that's what carries you through. Yeah. And you can be only five seconds. You can be five seconds, Tish says. There. But it's there. But then once you know it's there, you know, when people come on retreat, and they come in for an interview, and one of the things that they want to say to me is, you know, I had this aggravation, I had a headache, migraine for the first three days, and this, and the person next to me is sneezing all the time, and, you know, the stories of my childhood are all bothering me. But, you know, yesterday afternoon, I was sitting outside, and a deer walked by with two fawn, and I was just overwhelmed with the beauty of the moment. I said, okay. In that moment, when it happens again, something like that, when you suddenly say, whoa, this is just fine. Feel that feeling in your body. You could rehearse it a little bit. Teach it to your neurology. You know? I think our neurology just hasn't rehearsed a lot. We're primed to respond to things. Nobody gives us lessons in rehearsing peace. Maybe that's what we do when we come here on retreat. We have rehearsal for peace. I hadn't thought about that. It's like you have to like practice like 10 hours a day, <laughs> 12 hours a day. What were you going to say? Joe, somebody? Ed. I'm heated to say that being here for the past few years has made me more conscious of more times that I've felt peace. What? Just this exposure to the teachings of Buddhism has made me much more aware. You know what I'm thrilled about, Ed? Because I actually think that those moments, even if they're brief, uh, are a form of vaccination against absolute terror in terrible times. Mm -hmm. Because it could be a terrible time, and you say, ah, this is never going to end. Well, but it might, because I know that peace is possible in this very world. That that's one of those things that if you know it, a friend of mine years and years and years ago, said, um, you have some transcendent spiritual experience where all of a sudden the world is illuminated and wonderful and you know that it's just fine to be alive. She said, and then it passes. And she says, it's not good to go and try to make it last or have it happen again. She said, the thing is, it is gone. But the memory of it and the positiveness that that exists as one of the possibilities for mind is there, and you are altered by it. And that means a lot to me. So what's the fourth? Eightfold path. So, so we've all been talking about 
the, the fact that it doesn't stay very long. So I think the practice, the, 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 we'll, we'll put them down, all the things of the path, because who can recite? We'll have a little, who wants to take a stab at the Eightfold Path? They're written on the prayer wheel. Wise. Wise intention, wise. Wise livelihood, wise speech, wise view. That would be wise understanding, I suppose. I don't know how it's written on the prayer wheel. What else? Wise livelihood, yeah. So speech, he said that. We said everything except the contemplative inner part. <laughs> My mindfulness, ta-da. What else? Ta-da. Effort, that uh, well, action, yeah, we, we are covered by three. You know, I think that wise effort is the undersung hero of the entire path because everybody's wise mindfulness, well, that's where it is, wise concentration, mm. but wise effort, everybody kind of brushes that over, yeah, make an effort. But I, I actually think that wise effort, as the Buddha taught it, is the effort moment to moment to pay attention. What's the quality of my mind at this moment? Are there salubrious, wonderful, beneficial states in it? Good, keep them there. Not there, put them in there. Are there states that lead to suffering in there? Hmm. Let's get them out. Are there no states that lead to suffering? Terrific, keep them out. That's the whole practice. We could just take the take that take that as the whole fulcrum of it, really, to know what should I do from here. So really what I wanted to do, did you come by? I'm, I came to say hi. Hello. Now, that, now that you've completed the Four Noble Truths, <laughs> I feel sufficiently uplifted and inspired. <laughs> um, so I will take the good medicine. <laughs> I'm going to sit back down and tell the stories now. You missed all the fun part. Uh, this, this wasn't fun. <laughs> That was so fun for me for you to come in. You, know? <laughs> you should you should do it all the time. Joy is not, you know. That's so interesting, unless you think of it as. Wise attitude, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. I want to go back to the very first one about life being challenging and that the, the fact that every situation, if you look at it, that this is actually, this is the point that I am trying to make. We'll see if I actually end up um, making this point because it's what I hope to make that um, that you could you could go on retreat and really in a microcosm see the challenges of life in your own mind even around you on retreat you see other people who are struggling you can tell they're struggling physically or emotionally you can see that life is difficult you can see it's difficult for yourself because all the stories of your own life come up to present themselves but you can go to situations that are manifestly um, like, this is going to be a good day. So I went to the graduation at Santa Cruz. 
all kinds of opportunities to be irritated in a day. Like that. I mean, it's a beautiful day. The weather was beautiful. The weather was beautiful. My grandson is graduating. He's in good health. He's fortunate enough to have already a job for a, you know, a new graduate. Before he graduates, he's going to work next week. Everything fortunate. So, uh, in fact, I'm happy about it. So you, I watch my mind being happy about that. Good, I'm going to the... So the ride that's picking me up of some other members of my family who are going to drive down to Santa Cruz is late by a half hour. So we're so then the mind starts to think, well, we'll get there late. So, so just relax. We get there late. It's good. We're not graduating. It doesn't matter. So, but you have to keep adjusting the you know, the mind because it then it says, you know, they're always late. That doesn't matter. That that doesn't matter at all. You know, they could have. You know, it, uh, maybe this would have been the never time. And if they are, they aren't. This is the time I want to be there. Oh, right, you get there, walk down. Sit down in this big open field. Didn't remember that it's going to be in a big open field. Didn't check it's going to be in a big open field. Didn't bring sunscreen. Okay, somebody else remembered the sun. But that the mind keeps getting piqued by something rather. Er, no sunscreen. Okay, sunscreen. Um, sit down. Then, uh, just as the graduates are getting ready, you can see them up on the hill. To come down into this bowl, you have to walk down a very curving, long drive, sort of, that enters into this, maybe it's a soccer field or whatever, but it's a big field, with a, now a podium set up in front. And so here I'm sitting, and uh, all of a sudden I hear a sound of a paramedic truck, and I look up, and there's a paramedic up on the top of the hill. There's a knot of people, here comes a fire truck, here comes an ambulance. So you get a bad feeling about something that's happening. Oh, so you watch the mind going. Oh, wonderful. Oh, uh, oh. <laughs> that from the from the morning to the, okay, I'm going to the college graduation. Now I'll be late to college graduation. I'm here in this beautiful field. Now I'm going to get suntanned. Now I'm gonna, da, da, da. the mind up, down, up, down. You have the. It's a constant job to keep it. First of all, alert of what its moods are, and then reasonably able to balance it. So, I mean, none of those is calamitous so far. And the fire truck didn't come from me, but it came from somebody, and you feel bad about them. Then it turned, I, mean, I couldn't figure out what happened, but the fire truck stayed for 15 or 20 minutes, and they left. So, yeah, all right, it was warm, maybe someone had heat stroke, something. So then I hear the couple behind me talking, and he's saying, um, uh, one of them is saying to the other one, I, I, I'm still shook up about uh, the wheelchair. He, that, excuse me? He said uh, the person who went to the, they took off in the ambulance, was a woman who tripped coming around to come down to the graduation and fell on her wrist and apparently broke it. But that's not the whole thing. She was pushing a wheelchair when she fell. She tripped let go of the wheelchair, and the wheelchair was rolling down the hill. This guy who was telling the story grabbed the wheelchair, and apparently everything was saved. But uh, And the person next to him said, you know, I'm just telling this as a part of a story. I'm not, like, ratting on this person. Said, well, you know, nothing bad happened. But, you know, let's have a little empathy. This guy is shook up from me. He just caught a wheelchair. <laughs> 
and how easy it is to brush off. So I, what hurt me for a moment is how easy it is to brush off somebody's sincere expression of feeling. I'm shook up about the wheelchair. The response to that is what? Of course, understandable. It's very shaking up. No, ah, it's nothing. <laughs> so I feel bad. People are unempathic. That that whoever it was is now in the hospital, missing the graduation that she came to because she looked forward to it. Then I started to think about here come all these graduates walking by, and they all look fine and you know, happy. And I'm thinking about the collective number of family that's out there and the numbers of runs to the emergency room in the middle of the night with appendectomies, the collective number of orthodontia appointments <laughs> in all of these uh, 240 graduates, collective orthodontia, collective Boy Scout, Girl Scout costumes, collective soccer gear, a lot of attention went into all of these people. And all of these people, when the, the people go by from where I am, they all look the same. I was sitting far back, and they're all wearing those black gowns and hats. And they, they cross the stage. It takes 15 seconds. You can barely tell if it's a man or a woman going by. But everybody sees their person. Also, they call out the name as they go by. But otherwise, you know, you can't, yours is indistinguishable. But you get so happy when you see yours, you know, and you realize that uh, the thing with human beings is we have empathic bonds that attach themselves to one or another. It's not all the same. We say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. But we get tremendously attached to one or the other. This is one of the causes of suffering because it's not all right with us when things don't go well with one or another of them. So that when you said about, I haven't quite got it about that third noble truth piece is possible. I think for most people, for many people, the, one of the biggest um, challenges to peace is not having things good in our close relationships, not having a close relationship that's meaningful, not having relationships with our progeny that are meaningful. We want so much to have people who are dear to us. And then once we have people who are dear to us, we worry so much about the people <laughs> who are dear to us. It's a very, it's a very sort of rigged, rigged experiment. You can't have it both ways. And the Buddha said, if you don't want to suffer, you don't attach yourself to anybody. And really, his original teachings really were a monastic, were, were geared to a monastic lifestyle. We don't want to have. We live in a different time. We live in a culture. He was born into a culture that revered the monastic lifestyle. We're not so much born into a culture that reveres a monastic lifestyle. Our understanding of the spiritual path is that it's the development of the uh, development of the mind, habituating the mind to kindness and compassion, and that it can happen in whatever lifestyle. I really can understand that. Uh, the the rules of monasticism, uh, which provide for um, uh, uh, enough time for cont contemplation, for not particularly um, involve family relationships, might support 
the mind habituating itself to a more universal goodwill. But it's not a lifestyle that most of us take on. Most of us take on lifestyles with dearness in it. And then we have to work around that dearness. That's probably the hardest part. So I was thinking about uh, when it says in this regular scripture, it says what's suffering about life. It says life is suffering. Uh, we suffer when we don't get what we want. We suffer when we do get what we want because we'll be parted from it. Uh, and the question is, can you, can, you, can you risk the suffering that happens when you get parted from what's dear to you? Because you will. Because uh, having dearness is worth it. That's really the, 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 central, the central question. It takes a risk. Somebody in this class once said, um, after who was coming to class through all the stages of her pregnancy, uh, and then came back with her very small baby to have us make a blessing for that baby. She said, uh, you know, when I first got pregnant, everybody said, congratulations, great, wonderful. And in fact, you know, I was thrilled to be pregnant. I was thrilled to have this baby. She said, the only thing they didn't tell me is that once it's born, you have mortgaged away your whole entire heart for the whole rest of your life, you know, and that you had no idea that you were going to be hooked into It's a lifetime mortgage. What happens to this baby is now of extreme importance to you forever and ever. And of course, if someone would have asked you that, you would have said, of course, that's true. But you don't actually realize it till you've got it. And, you know, is, is that true? Is that true? It's an amazing thing. But everybody wants to take that risk anyway. It's built into us to want to take that risk. So to practice that Eightfold Path, they say, so what about that practicing? If it's extremely hard for the mind to accommodate to things that it didn't want to have happen. Tension in the mind when you say, I didn't want this, but I've got it. How do we cultivate that kind of a mind that says, this is not what I wanted, but it's what I've got? There are all kinds of words for that, like malleability of mind, flexibility of mind. But mostly, I think, it is wisdom. And that's where it comes back to the beginning of what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Specifically, the wisdom that's been most helpful for me is, uh, is knowing that my experience of the moment is not going to be the eternal experience. Even when something really terrible happens, there's some part that feels I'll never be an, uh, you know, I can never, I can never, I can never not feel as grieved as I do now. I think to some degree knowing maybe someday the, the, the grip of this grief will be a little less. Not that sadnesses ever go away or that we forget about them, but other things happen and other things happen and other things happen. Because in a room full of people, I won't do this here, but in a room full of people, 
it's always uh, quite surprising to people if you say how many people here have lost a sibling um, in their life to death before they were 20 years old. A lot of people. And you think about the mothers of those people and the fathers of those people. They did it somehow. It makes an impact. It's somehow reassuring to know that the mind can rehabilitate itself. And I think it rehabilitates itself not because it gets over it, but because it acknowledges its really deep pain and its own natural compassion comes up. I'm sure I told you the story about the woman on the plane with, uh, who, who wanted the seat next to mine. I'll tell you that story. How many people don't know about the woman on the plane who wanted to see next to me? <laughs> it's worth telling then, because it's a, it's a composite story. It happened in the last year or so. I got on a plane to go to New York. I got on a plane to go to New York, and uh, there were three seats and three seats, two, one center aisle. And I had the window seat in the fourth row, way up in the front. I like that. <laughs> Not having to be in the way. Anyway, I had the window seat, and a man had the aisle seat. People getting on and on and on. And meantime, no one's sitting in the middle between us. So we're both really looking at each other, hoping that nobody <laughs> takes that seat. Because it's a long flight. Nobody takes that seat. So you, you can spread out. It's a little nicer. Close the doors. We look at each other. Thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> Take off. An hour later, there's a, I realized there's a woman standing at the side of my aisle looking at the seat. And so I look up at her and she said, what if, I'm sitting in the back. She said, would you mind if I came and um, uh, sat in this seat for the, last, uh, for, for the last half hour of the flight? And no, 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 that'd be fine, great. Because well, I thought she was going to say, can I, can I sit here now? <laughs> I was thrilled with the last half hour of the flight. And I was really embarrassed, by the way, to tell you that in my mind I'm thinking, ah. But she didn't ask that. I mean, so I'm just as a complete candor. I wasn't thrilled. But to give up the seat, but I would have, because it would have been, I would have been more unhappy with my mind state had I not. But I really was hoping. Anyway, she said, I'll be here when, the, when they announce we're going to land. I'll come up. Okay? She goes away. And then bye-bye, the pilot says, uh, in a moment, we're gonna, I'm going to turn on the seatbelt light, and we'll start to land. And there she is. And she puts her purse in the, up, uh, in the, in the um, compartment above, sits down, thanks us profusely. I said, no, oh, fine, fine. I said, do you really, it's really better for you up here at this point? She said, oh, yeah. She said, uh, what did she say? She said, I'm claustrophobic. She said, I'm claustrophobic. So as long as the plane is flying, it's all right for me to be in the back. But when we land and we come up to the gate and everybody stands up, the whole plane is crowded with people. I don't feel good. So I like to be in the front so I can get off first. Fine. So then I start a conversation. Are you going home to New York? Or, no, no, she said, I live in San Francisco. Two of my sisters are in the back. We're all flying together. 
Uh, I'm going to uh, my sister's, her husband, I see she's about my age, I figured that out. Uh, my sister's husband died yesterday and we're all going to the funeral. So there's the three of us and my sister and uh, my two other brothers in New York. And uh, I said, it's good to have a big family like that, uh, all hold each other up at a time like this. And she said, well, actually, uh, she said, we, it is. She said, but actually we had a bigger family. We were seven of us. She said, you know, in, uh, in those days, because she also sized up how old I am, so we know what days we're talking about. She said, in, in those days, uh, an Irish Catholic family, we had a lot of children. So she said, uh, there were seven of us. Um, uh, but my brother Jimmy died in the South Pacific, um, outside of uh, Guadalcanal. Um, he was in the Navy. Uh, so I, I said, I'm sorry about that. She said, yeah. She said, uh, he, uh, he, he signed up. He enlisted in the Navy just before his 18th birthday because he knew he'd be uh, drafted as soon as he was 18. And he didn't want to be in the Army because he thought, I, I don't want to sleep on the ground. I'd rather have a real bed. So you think about the irony of what decisions cause you to have a real bed on a boat that then sinks. So uh, I said, um, I said, who was more upset? I said, do you remember? She said, oh yeah, I was five years old. I said, who was more uh, upset, your mother or your father? And she said, oh, they were both completely, they never got over it. Speak of the three and a half noble truths. You know, they lived on, but it's never gone. She said, but you know, my sisters and brothers and I, we uh, established a foundation for, and we put together money, and we sponsor a student uh, from uh, one of the outer islands to come to Guadalcanal to go to school for high school. One of, we find every year we get a list of... Uh, gifted applicants, and we pay for the tuition and the travel of a student to go and live and study in Guadalcanal, because it's not easy to get a, an education there. So we're doing that for Jimmy, and we're taking care. And she said, then every other year or so, one of us goes over to visit our children, because we have another child every year going to high school there. I said, well, you know, there must be a, quite a significant foundation. She said, well, we got quite a lot of family now because <laughs> everybody married and had a lot of children, so we have quite a lot of family, so we have enough to do that. But she said, but you know, when a terrible thing happens to you like that, you have to do something out that, that balances it in some way. You have to make a restitution in the world in some way. And just at that point... The, the plane drove up to the, the door of uh, uh, the, the, um, where, the gate, and uh, you could you hear the, the uh, pilot switch off the motor and the lights, uh, the seatbelt light goes off. And in a flash, she leaped up, leaped up, reached up and reached her purse, slid right in front of this man next to us into the aisle, and was zoomed the first person off the plane. And I just, first of all, I thought about her that, uh, what a gift. Someone sits down next to you and gives you a little Dharma talk about <laughs> how you deal with extreme loss in life, you know? I, I couldn't have 
ask for, would the, would the Buddha please sit down next to me and give a little talk about how the mind and heart manages to not get over, because you never really get over, but somehow do something that balances the, the, the trauma and the loss in the mind. Not people who heard about the Buddha, but people who know that instinctively, if you do something good for other people, that somehow you soothe your own pain in the doing. That's sort of counterintuitive. You think someone should do something for me and I'll feel better. But in doing something for somebody else, you heal your own woundedness. And she also, at one point I said to her, you know, it was great that you told me, I love this, I said, it was great that you told me about the claustrophobia. And she said, yeah, why shouldn't I tell you? She said, I'm not embarrassed by it. She said, everybody's got something. (laughs) And, you know, I went around teaching from that for a couple of weeks after that because that's so um, inspiring. Do you think that's true? Everybody's got something? Who here has something? (laughs) An issue, you know? You say so-and-so has... uh, uh, separation issues, so-and-so has eating issues, so-and-so has this issues, men issues, women issues. Uh, everybody's got something. So that's a claustrophobia. I have claustrophobia. Everybody's got something. That's, that seems so healthy. So I would put that in the category of wisdom. So I'm glad because I more or less stayed on topic today. Uh, <laughs> you get a board every week. <laughs> All right, now we'll keep the board. You like the board? The board was good. The board is good. The board is good. Now, the next thing is you should bring a notebook. If I bring a board, you bring a notebook. We'll make like a real class next week on this very board. Now, here's our homework. Because I want to put out that I think this is, this is a homework. Uh, I hear that in certain standardized tests for testing students' ability to think, uh, that uh, like the SATs and the ACTs and all those things that people are taking, that often the, an essay will be an aphorism. Like this, is, you know, here's a statement. Uh, do you think this is true or not true? And can you support this with something from contemporary life, something from history, something from fiction, maybe, or something and or something from your own life, or all of the above? So if I were to look at this, life is challenging because it's inherently changing. I could think about, uh, I could relate, I could say, well, about myself, da 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 da, da or about uh, the, the uh, tension in the, t- suffering is tension in the mind when it can't accommodate to a situation. For myself, I can accommodate to most things in my life, but I can't X, Y, Z, da da da. Uh, peace is possible. One of those ways, that I feel it. And next week we'll add the, the eight specific ways that the Buddha pointed out as uh, antidotes to that tension. The one specific way we talked about, to, two specific ways we talked about today were wise understanding, that you understand that, you know, this happens to everybody. Everybody's got something. And also the understanding that if something terrible happens to you, you have to do something about it. And also, uh, we talked about, in terms of wise action, generosity. If you do something for somebody else, you feel better, which is paradoxical, you know. 
it's the, it's the opposite of I need to go out and get something for myself. I need to do something for somebody else. So you like the chalkboard. I like it too. Okay. May the merit, whatever merit, we accrue from being here teaching ourselves and each other and being good company for each other and ourselves inspire us to continue to practice those habits of mind that lead to kindness and compassion for ourselves and all beings. And may our communities and our families and our culture and our world be enriched by it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.